0: where your investments help support the work of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Visit lcef.org for more information. On this Thursday, April 23rd, we are starting a two-day theological excursus that will help us through our study of the Book of Romans. Throughout this extensive epistle, St. Paul makes use of multiple theological terms, multiple theological distinctions. And if you're like me, you hear and, and maybe you even use some of these church words regularly, but, but perhaps we don't always pause and consider their full meaning, their full importance. This two-day excursus affords us the opportunity to do just that with two key theological distinctions, not only for St. Paul in the Book of Romans, but throughout the totality of God's Word to us. The theological distinction for today could be considered the granddaddy of them all, the proper distinction between law and gospel. To help us sharpen our faith in Christ as we study God's Word today, we have with us regular guest, Pastor Ryan Agradowitz. Pastor Agrotowitz is the associate pastor and headmaster at Grace Lutheran Church and School in Brenham, Texas. Pastor Agradowitz, welcome back to Sharper Iron.
1: Pastor Apple, great to be here. Yeah, it might be the granddaddy of them all. This distinction, right?
0: Yeah. So to, uh, that you know, that's a, I think that's use of the Rose Bowl, right? The granddaddy of them all. But but it seems it seems appropriate to apply to law and gospel. Why why do you why would you agree with that?
1: Because once this un, this distinction is you know captured in the mind and a person begins to think like this, the Bible doesn't remain so much a mysterious book, but it begins to make a lot more sense. And that's not just my opinion, um, and and it is one I, I do hold to, but in Wather's Law and Gospel, I'll jump to him because his work on this is just so, so good. He says essentially the same thing. The Bible really is a closed book. Until you start seeing how God speaks with his law, with his gospel, things become uh clarified and you begin just to see and understand why God says what he does when he is speaking the law, why he is saying what he says when he speaks the gospel. We understand what these terms mean, and it's just like a light bulb goes off.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's the term Walther uses. I can't remember which thesis it is in his, his work on the proper distinction between law and gospel. I want to say it's, it's four, but I could be wrong on that. Um, and, and I think Walther got that from Luther, at least in the, the idea that this is such a key distinction— and, and I, hope, I hope what we can show today is that both Walther and Luther got that from, from Jesus, that this isn't a distinction that they made up on their own, but rather it's a distinction that comes straight out of the text of Holy Scripture for us, that, that this is something that God wants us to see in His Word, not just something that, that your Lutheran pastor throws out a couple of times to, to make himself sound smart. This is this is really important. So with with that as an introduction, Pastor Gradato, let's let's jump right in. Let's do a bit of defining. So we're talking about law and gospel. Start off with the with the law. What's the law?
1: Right, definitions are crucial when you're dealing with theology. Okay. The law is God's teaching about what is right. It's his revealed will for our lives, how we ought to live. The um the, the function of the law Being that it is God's will for us, and and the teaching of what he he demands, it shows everything contrary to God's holy will. So it does have a function in that it rebukes us for our sin. It shows us our sin when we look at it and measure ourselves against it. The, The law is good for society, keeping society in check. And then also the law is instruction. It's good, holy, divine, eternal, just as God is eternal, and so there's no problem with the law per se. it is good, and we need to hold on to it. We need to keep it, we need to keep it before our eyes, on our hearts and on our minds. Simple definition though it's God telling us what what we need to do, and it's it's not an option. The Ten Commandments are not you know, take them or leave them, but that would be the law. We can go more into the function of the law. I just gave like a snapshot, that curb mirror and rule stuff. But uh, for your listeners, it's good to bear in mind that the law is just God, His will for our lives, Him instructing, telling us how we ought to live.
0: Right. So a couple, a couple of thoughts there. That's a very broad definition of the law, and I think it's helpful to keep that broad definition of the law in, in our minds, that this is simply God's revealed will. This is the way that he wants things to go. And, and then it, it narrows down a bit into his commands. You mentioned the Ten Commandments. And particularly when we think about the Catechism and the way that we teach this to our, to our confirmands, the Ten Commandments really are then the summary of God's law, God's will, and then, as you said, there's, there's typically three uses or three functions that we talk about when it comes to God's law. Take us, take us a bit more into those three uses, three functions.
1: Yeah, sure. So traditionally, when we talk about the functions of the law, I do think that curb, mirror, and rule is helpful, and we'll, we'll, we'll work with those. So the curb, God's law, you know, curbs society from bad behavior, so for for example, the law, you shall not murder. That law is a law of the land, and it's also a law of God, uh, telling people that we should not murder. And so you know we, we we see that law, we hear it in the laws of society, and the effect there is for it to you know curb and make people at the very least think twice before you know committing that crime, committing that sin because there could be consequences, and so forth. And, you know, I I was teaching this to one of my confirmands one time, and she said, well, there's a lot of people who jump the curb. (laughs) And I said, yeah, we have jail cells that will prove that point. Uh, But it still does have that function of curbing. You know, another example might be, you know, our hesitation to speed is because there's a punishment for doing that where the police officer will pull you over if you're doing 75 and a 65, and one day that will catch up to me. Um, the mirror function might be the, the chief function of the law, and I think, I think we need to see it that way. And that is, when you look at yourself in the mirror of God's law, comparing yourself with how you stack up to it, the law shows you who you are before God, that is to say you are a sinner deserving wrath for your sin. The law accuses, it rebukes, it reproves, and it shows you to be that sinner against God's divine will. You have not measured up and done the things the Lord has told you to do every single day. And then finally, we get to that third use, which would be um, the instructive, the rule, the guide. You know, you're, uh, the, the, the psalmist says, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light for my path. God's word is a light lamp. It illuminates. It instructs. And there is that function of the law, teaching and helping a Christian, shaping the way a Christian ought to live. So a person is brought into the faith, they love the Lord, they want to do the right thing, and there is plenty in the law instructing them on how they live their Christian life, while at the same time, you know, lex semper accusat, the law is always accusing, and with that function in mind, the sinner is daily thrust upon the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. But if we're going to talk mercy and grace, that takes us into the gospel territory but in terms of the law. Those are that's a snapshot of the three functions that it exercises upon the sinner.
0: I appreciate the the use of the the speeding when it come, I'm going to go back to the curb for a moment here. Because I think that I think the matter of speeding really helps illustrate what the law's function is as a curb. And it also shows it's inability to give what it demands. So when it comes to to speeding in particular, you're driving down the road in the middle of town. Okay. We won't go to the highway where you're driving 75 and in a 70. Okay. But, but it's, you see 35 and, and you see that. And, and as you said, it may not keep you completely at 35 or lower, but at least it prevents you from going 70. So you are going, say, thirty seven, thirty eight, maybe forty, right? But, but I think what what that shows. So the law certainly does curb our behavior. It, it prevents me from driving seventy right through the middle of town, but it it doesn't do it perfectly. It it I think I've got a bit of wiggle room, right? I, so I I can say, well, it says thirty five, so I am going to go thirty seven, thirty eight. So the the law's there, and it 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 starts to curb my behavior, but it it's not fully giving what it demands. It it does not instill in me the desire, the will to go 35, period. It just sort of pushes me in the, keeps me in the bounds a little bit. And I think, I think that's such a, a powerful thing because, as, as you've said, ultimately that chief use, that chief function of the law is that it shows our sin, that, that function of the mirror. We look in it and we see, I have sinned. And, and the reality is, when I'm driving 37 through town, and the speed limit is thirty-five. I've broken it. That's—I mm-hmm. that, mean, I look in that mirror. There's no denying it. It hasn't fully given it to me, but I've—I've broken it. And there's there's that chief, chief use, chief function. And and then, as you said, then when we start to talk about the third use of the law, and and in terms of the instruction, that's going to be a, a use that only is going to be there for Christians who who learn to love the law. And the only way we can learn to love the law is if we've got the gospel, because the law is always going to ultimately accuse us, as you said, lex semper accusat. The law always accuses. Therefore, we need the gospel. So, Pastor Gradowitz, start telling us about the gospel.
1: Right, now, so now we get to the part that really calms the conscience. So, the gospel is God's good news. The satisfaction for sins has been met totally, completely in the and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that gift is yours without merit and favor on your part. And that's important to say whenever we're talking about the good news, that last part, that it's yours without any merit or favor on your part. And that, that really does crystallize our understanding of what the gospel is because there, there are many well-intentioned Christian people in Christian denominations who will completely agree wholeheartedly, yes, you were you are saved by grace. Jesus has died for you. That's wonderful. And then the very next breath, they say something to the effect of all you got to do is just give your life, or all you have to do is just you know, make a decision. All you have to do is just love him, and then he will love you. And they, they thrust salvation in some way, shape, or form back on the individual. Okay? And that's what we want to avoid. That is not a sola gratia position, grace alone. When you say, but there's something I have to do for it to be mine. No, God saves God has died for you. God grants faith to believe these things. Salvation is of God. It belongs to Him. That's exactly where we want it to be, and we never, ever want to smuggle our own selves into our definition of the gospel. It is Christ's work to die, and His gift of atoning is yours without personal work and merit.
0: So the law says, this is what you must do. These are God's commands. The gospel... This is what God has done. These are his promises. Now, with, with the word gospel, this word, and, and this I think is true of law as well, and we'll probably talk about this when we when we look more specifically at the book of Romans, but with the word gospel, sometimes the, the scriptures, and sometimes in our own speech, we use this word in a broader sense than the term, the way that you've just described it, Pastor Grotto, which help us to, to see... How, how do we sometimes use the term gospel in the broader sense and then this very narrow sense that we're going to be looking at today?
1: Yeah, sure. You know, a good example of the term gospel in the broad sense is going to be Mark chapter 1. I'm just going to flip to it right here in my Bible. But if, if you read Mark 1.1, 1, 1, almost there, here it is. The beginning, it's at the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then he just takes off. Now, right there when we say gospel, the good news is the entirety of God's word, law, gospel, the entire thing is gospel in the sense that it's good and it's for us. And that's how Mark is using that term right there in chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, and then it doesn't take him long, though, to have a more distinct use of it. When you get to Mark 1, 15, when he says, Repent okay, and believe in the gospel. Their gospel becomes more narrow in the sense that repent, repent of your sin, and believe in the gospel—the good news that your sins are forgiven. So, Mark chapter one has a pretty, I think, clear distinction in that term and how it's used in the broad sense, and then uh, meaning the entirety of God's holy word, and then the narrow sense that it's the good news of sins forgiven. Uh, also, too, in our Lutheran confessions, you know, I didn't, I didn't know this before studying, but they have a quote from Acts, and it's Acts twenty. Verse uh, 21, which reads, um, okay, so verse 21, testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is uh, Paul speaking right here, but that passage right there, repentance and faith, you know, they interpret that to mean this is the gospel there, that what Paul is speaking is the gospel in that broad sense. I also heard a professor say in 1 Corinthians 9, that's when Paul says, Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. You know, his take on that was that, um, yeah, right here, verse 16, for if I preach the gospel, it gives me no ground for boasting. You know, I I remember him saying he he thought that was more in a broad sense, and and that may be. I don't think we have to go that route. Um, But the clearest example I would say is in Mark 1, and there aren't a whole lot of examples of that uh, term explicitly used in the broad sense, but it is there, and it's something to keep in mind when we're reading holy writ
0: right and 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 then the ways we we speak as well i mean we think about the what is the church's role, what is the pastor's role? it is to proclaim the gospel, and certainly that's true in a very narrow sense that the pastor would proclaim the gospel, that a Christian congregation would be about preaching and teaching the gospel in a narrow sense that, that Christ has died, Christ has risen for sinners to give salvation freely apart from our merits. That has to be proclaimed by a Christian congregation and a Christian pastor because you're not going to hear it anywhere else. But sometimes when we, when we summarize the work of the church, proclaim the gospel in that sense, yeah, there, there's a sense. That doesn't mean that we only speak gospel. We are still speaking law as well. Um, and so, so, yeah, we, we want to keep in mind that sometimes these words get used in their broader sense, sometimes in a, in a more narrow sense. We're speaking very narrowly here in terms of law as the demands that God makes upon us, his revealed will, saying, do this, don't do that, the gospel being his promises. This, God says, this is what I have done for you in my son, Jesus Christ, and I give it to you freely apart from any merit or work on your part. That's, that's the distinction that we're looking at today. And as we, as we think about this, misconceptions on the way that this works. The, the first one, you hinted at it earlier when it, when it came to the law, when we distinguish between law and gospel, are we saying the law is bad and the gospel is good?
1: No, not at all. No, we're not saying that. And in fact, the scriptures say God's law is holy and good. Paul will make that point, and I mean, the psalmist says, "I love your law." I mean, there's just loads of passages that make it clear God's law is good. Right? That, that's why it is gospel in the broad sense. It is good. God's law is good for you. Okay, it is good news on how you are to live. It's instructive and so forth. And we should be thankful that we have it because it is His God. It is his, his uh, will for our lives and so forth that we talked about. So the law is not bad. The problem is not with the law. The problem is sin and sin within us, and that's how we need to see it. The reason why the law brings wrath, the law reproves, and really drives us to, to even be angry at God because we're, we're feeling the conviction is because of our sinful, fleshy nature. Okay, But no, it, short answer to the question, the law is good, holy, righteous, wise, and, and we, need to, uh, we need to hold on to it and keep it, even if it hurts, even if we don't like to hear it, the problem is not with God and His, his Word.
0: Right, right. So, the, yeah, the law's not bad. That's, that's not what we're saying when we say law, gospel. It, it's not that the law is bad. And, and maybe, as a, I, I probably should have touched on this first, just as a, maybe a slight backtrack. You, you mentioned three functions, three uses of the law, that it serves as a curb, it serves as a mirror, it serves as a guide i don't I don't think we typically talk that way in terms of the gospel it, that it that it has three functions at least, but I think we we can say what what would you say is the if those are the uses of the law, chief among them being to show us our sin as that mirror, what is the use, what is the function of the gospel?
1: To calm our conscience, to grant us peace in the in the face of God's law and its accusation to speak into our hearts and minds that we are righteous and all is well because Christ has died for us. If I had to summarize that even, the gospel is to instill in us peace and hope for the sake of Jesus. calms us down. It, it puts us on level ground to know, hey, it's really going to be okay. If the cancer kills me, I'm all right. If the coronavirus kills me, big deal for the Christian. I mean that. Big deal. You die only to live. Christ has told you, do not fear those things that kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Nothing can deliver you out of his hands. All is well. The gospel calms us down and grants us peace. That, that's the function. And I keep wanting to add things because I keep thinking of things. It's so great. Um, heaven is in your possession. The forgiveness of sins, you're redeemed, you're purchased, you're bought back from sin, death, and the devil. And this gives us tremendous hope in these times of uncertainty and chaos when the world is becoming unhinged from uh, this, really from natural law. That's kind of a different discussion. But the gospel gives us hope in these times. Precisely because Christ has died for us and made satisfaction for sin, and so if your sins aren't held against you, if God will remember them no more, not counting them and holding them before your face and judging you, then we have every reason to be happy and rejoice knowing heaven is ours. Even now we can, we can be at peace.
0: Right, right. Yeah, and I, I the reason I, I, I should have asked you that first, but I think that's helpful. in, in is the, is it law, bad, gospel, good? No, it's, it's not that. It's that they, they're both good, but they do different things. The law is good in that it shows us what what God's will is for our lives what a what a righteous life actually looks like the law is good in that it shows us our sin so that we would then go to the gospel and that's what saves the law is good but it can't save the gospel is good and it, it can save it does save because because of Jesus Christ, of all that he's done. And as you said, then, it bestows upon us all these blessings, the peace, the comfort of that salvation, the rest in the midst of the, the chaos of this world, to know that, that nothing, not even our own sin, is going to separate us from our Lord Jesus Christ, because it's a gift. It's, it's all from him. A few more before, before our break, Pastor was just in terms of some maybe myths about law gospel and this hopefully will, will set us up for the other, other side where we dig into the Scriptures. Is, is the law-gospel distinction a distinction between Old Testament, New Testament, that the Old Testament preaches the law and the New Testament preaches the gospel?
1: Not at all. Um, the more I, I deal with the Old Testament as a pastor, the more I see a God who is much more patient than I am with people, I, I have an affection for the minor prophets, and the more I read them and study them, God's patience, His grace, just just the leeway He gives His people is extraordinary. And I found myself reading the Old Testament, thinking, "My gosh, I, I would have I would have stricken these people a long time ago." And I'm a sinful, you know, of, of course, corrupt with sin and very impatient, but. The gospel is all over the place in the Old Testament. God's law is all over the place in the Old Testament. And a lot of this goes back to how we what we talked about early on, that once once you start seeing law and gospel, the Bible no longer remains a sealed book. That is thesis four. You were correct about that. I have Wather's book open in front of me. But you begin to see in the Old Testament the gospel is all over the place. And I I've you know marked some passages of where we see law and gospel, but you know, once a reader starts reading it with an understanding of the definitions and the distinctions suddenly I mean just we see this all over the page in so many places in the old testament and in the new testament as well you have plenty of law plenty of instruction and plenty of gospel so no it's not isolated to one testament meaning you know law in the old gospel in the new but god speaking in these ways is throughout the entirety of his holy word
0: mm, right yeah i think that's a good way to to see it this is law gospel is simply a description of two ways that god speaks to his people in his word he speaks in the law to show them what his will is what a righteous life looks like to show them that they have not measured up and then he speaks to them in the gospel to show them that what what they could not do what you and i could not do he has done for us in his son jesus christ and he gives it to us freely now in order to save us the salvation that we could never have won he has won, and he freely gives through his son, Jesus Christ. That's the the distinction between law and gospel we're looking at here on Sharper Iron. We're going to take a short break, but we will be right back. Please stick around. In many ways, St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Bel Air, Maryland is just like any other Lutheran Church Missouri Synod Church. They have worship services each Sunday and reach out to their community, but one thing they don't do is pay their electric bill. Hello, this is Rahema Kavuga, Synod Relations Manager of Lutheran Church Extension Fund. And if you want to hear what St. Matthew actually did to eliminate their electric bill, just visit InterestTime.org. That's InterestTime.org. I'm Pastor AJ Espinosa, host of Thy Strong Word, taking your questions as we go through the entire Bible, chapter by chapter. Let's read together with guest pastors from around the country and the church around the world, taking chapters and verses together in context, every passage fitting together in the Lord Jesus, because He is the Word of God. Let's read together.
1: Thy Strong Word, weekday mornings at 11 on Worldwide KFUO. Underwritten by Lutheran Heritage Foundation, LHFmissions.org.
2: Hello, I'm Gary Duncan. The COVID nineteen pandemic is affecting our routines, vocation, and worship. Recently you received a mailing about our annual Sherathon fundraising event. However, during this unprecedented time, KFUO Radio is postponing our on-air portion of Sharathon until June twenty-fifth through the twenty-seventh. Gifts can still be made through the mail and online, plus those gifts will be matched by this year's matching fund. I know times are tough, but when you are able to bless our ministry, please do so. Opportunities to share the hope that is ours through Jesus Christ increase at times like this. And as a partner, you provide for those in our neighborhoods and around the world to hear the gospel message through KFUO Radio. I pray for you and your safety, and I ask for you to pray for KFUO, our staff and volunteers, during this difficult time. And again, our plans are to move the broadcast dates of our on-air until June 25th through the 26th. 7th. Thank you for listening and supporting KFUO. Christ for you, anytime, anywhere.
0: Welcome back to Sharper Iron. On this Thursday, April 23rd, we are talking about the distinction between law and gospel in the scriptures in the book of Romans with Pastor Ryan Agrotowitz, the associate pastor and headmaster at Grace Lutheran Church and School in Brenham, Texas. So, Pastor Grotowicz, we've laid out what this proper distinction between law and gospel is in the first half of the program. Let's, let's spend a little time now finding this in the scriptures. We said earlier that this is not Old Testament law, New Testament gospel, but that these are two ways of God speaking to us throughout the totality of his word, that he speaks to us both in his commands, this is what we are to do, showing us how we don't measure up, and also in his promises, this is what he has done for us freely for the sake of his Son Jesus Christ. So let's let's start looking at this. I want to look at this in the scriptures as a whole, and then specifically within the book of Romans, since that's where we are on sharper iron right now. Just give us some some examples. where Where do we see this at work in the scriptures? Where are some of the best places to look?
1: I can't think of any other starting point than Genesis. So you, you're reading Genesis, and the Lord, of course, is creating everything. Six days of creation, and He puts some trees in the garden. There's a tree of life, and there's a tree of the knowledge of the good, knowledge of good and evil. And so, in Genesis 2:16, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So there is a good, blessed word, God's law for his, his creation, for Adam and Eve. And that's for them to hold on to and believe in. So he lays that down, if you eat this, you will die. Well, we know the story. They succumb to temptation, both sin. And sin comes into the world, it falls from its perfect status that's placed before our Lord, and when the Lord confronts Adam, Eve, and the serpent about this, there's going to be plenty of consequences for living in a fallen world, and beginning at Genesis 3.14, the Lord is going to lay those out. However, though they had eaten the fruit, and now there's going to be death, there's going to be death. (laughs) Luther has this quote in his Genesis commentary that after the fall, Adam could have heard a leaf hit the ground and would have been terrified. I'm paraphrasing his quote, but now the world's a scary place because of sin. But in Genesis 3.15, we have what's, what's commonly referred to as the first gospel in the entire Bible, where God says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And sometimes to kind of bring out To bring out the uh, the work of our Lord Jesus, it'll say, He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. And I think that's acceptable as well, even though it's the same Hebrew word. But that is the gospel pointing to the offspring of the woman who will come in the person and work of Jesus Christ to fix the problem of sin in ourselves, the problem of sin ushered into the world, at the fall, at the sin of our first parents. So that's Genesis right there. Another section that I liked, and again, these are just examples that jump out at me. Other pastors certainly have theirs and that's all that's all fair game. But Genesis thirty two at verse thirty nine, the Lord says this interesting verse. He says, Okay, I, I am he and there's no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound And I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. And so there we see a a really clear crystallization of this law of gospel speaking at work. He kills, he slays, but he also revives and makes alive. He wounds and he heals. And this is so, so similar to God's law slaying us, showing us, reducing us, crushing us into ashes and dirt when we know that we have sinned. And then his gospel reviving and, and giving us life. This ha- has this death to life theme that we find in, in, um, in the, certainly in the New Testament where we're crucified with Christ, but as he lives, we live. So Deuteronomy 39, I think, really hits that on the head as well. And then, mm-hmm. ah, 2 Samuel 12. So that's when David has sinned tremendously with uh, Bathsheba. So he, uh, remember, he takes Bathsheba. He has her husband, Uriah, he is killed in the battle. It's it's really, it, it's a sad, sad story, but it does very powerfully, teach us about sin, because David has committed this tremendous sin. He has, you know, her husband off, he takes her for himself, of course she gets pregnant, and all these horrible sins, and he thinks he's gotten away scot-free, murdering a man, committing adultery... and and all these other commandments that he is just blown as a king. And then Nathan comes up to him, tells him the story about the sheep being stolen, and really just puts David into a corner. David says, ah, the man that stole the other man's sheep needs to die. And then Nathan, you know, you are the man, you have done it. You deserve death. And at that moment, um, you you know, David just realizes he is really messed up, um, And and then Nathan gives him the gospel, right? Uh, You know, you will not die. You will not die. God has put away your sin. And that's good. That's absolution being bestowed upon someone who realizes that he has sinned and now seeks mercy in life. And so Nathan really is working with this law gospel, preaching right there to, you know, again, convict him of sin, the king, to show him what he has done is wrong, but then also tell him the gospel, the good news. I wanted to read, I, when I get to paraphrasing, I'm always afraid I'm going to say something that the Lord hasn't said, but this is too good just to, to gloss over. In verse 7, chapter 12 of second Samuel, You are the man, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house, your master's wives, and your arms, and you gave the house of Israel, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if this were too little, I would add to you as much more, why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil? And it's sight, you have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, fifth commandment issue, and have taken his wife to be your wife, sixth commandment issue, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Goes on at 13, that's when David says, I have sinned against the Lord, and here, Nathan, here he comes, the Lord also has put away your sin, you shall not die. That's what I wanted to, 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 to bring out. All right, that second Samuel, Samuel—it's a tremendous story, and, and that, I just gave the bullet points at the tip of the iceberg, but there's law gospel right there. Then you get to the Psalms, and I love reading the Psalms. The more I read, the more I realize I need to learn. I learn even more. I don't know, but two Psalms that jump out are Psalm 32 is one when the psalmist says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So there again, the law is accusing. The psalmist knows he has sinned, but he confesses that sin and receives absolution. And the same thing also is in Isaiah, uh, Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin and and You read Psalm 51, and it's a wonderful psalm just highlighting a person in grief, David here, in tremendous grief and pain. He's confessing, he's looking for help, and the Lord gives it. This is not a man who is relying upon works of the law to save himself. This is not a man who, after the Bathsheba affair, is trusting in himself, but he realizes that he has sinned. He's made a a tremendous mistake and only by God's mercy will his sin be blotted out. So, certainly no room for works, righteousness, decision theology, and all these self centered, manly things right here with David. Okay, and then uh, we get to the prophets. Isaiah chapter 1 has that line where God says, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. They're like crimson, they shall become like wool. I also wrote down Jeremiah. One verse nine, and this is this is neat because of course he's calling Jeremiah. Jeremiah thinks, "Hey, I'm too young to do this gig," or right? he goes, "I'm only a youth," <laughs> but that doesn't matter to the Lord, does it? It doesn't. He doesn't rely upon the attributes of the person or his age. Uh, he's going to use Jeremiah, but Jeremiah is going to speak the word of God. So his age is is irrelevant here because he's going to proclaim God's word to the people. And the Lord says, okay, I have put my words in your mouth. I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms. And then listen to this, to plug up and break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. So there's going to be this destruction and building, this overthrowing and planting and growth. Um, this, this, this conviction of sin, and Jeremiah will preach plenty of law to the people that, uh, with the intended effect, to drive them to repentance, to show them their sinful, sinful, iniquitous ways, and he will also preach restoration and forgiveness to them in many cases. The Lord still loves them and he is still there quick to heal, quick to forgive. Uh final Old Testament example I wrote down is in the book of Amos. I love Amos. And in that book, the first eight chapters, lots and lots and lots of law, and just Amos preaching Showing the people, you know, what you are doing is wrong, top to bottom. And then in chapter 9, that's a chapter about restoration and healing. And so there, there, that's an example where you see in a book this law gospel structure at work. And I know there are other examples, and I've gone really quick, um, but hopefully that will give you know, the listener a taste of how this law and gospel way of speaking runs throughout the Bible. That's just the Old Testament. I'm, I'm assuming we're going to get to the New when we get to Romans and, and so forth.
0: That's right. That's right. So that that was a fantastic walk through the Old Testament, and particularly the ones that—and all of them are, are great examples of law and gospel being utilized within the Old Testament— the, the example of David being confronted by the prophet Nathan is very striking in the way that Nathan comes, confronts him with his sin, David confesses, and then the word turn, turns to absolution. There's, there's the gospel coming. The, the ones that I, I really, really appreciate you bringing out were the Deuteronomy 32 passage and the Jeremiah 1 passage, because there you have from the Lord himself saying, this is what he's doing. He says, I kill and I make alive. He says he gives his word to Jeremiah to pluck up and to break down and to build up, right? He's, he's the one who's doing these things with his word. And, and I, the thing I love about those passages is that it, it shows that this isn't this law gospel distinction that we've been talking about. Isn't something that Luther or Walther or any other theologian made up. This is the way that God speaks and you hear it from his, his own mouth in the, and and I, when I was thinking about this in the old Testament, I, I just couldn't think of those passages, but I think that those are, are two key ones where the Lord says, this is how I'm talking to you in two different ways in law and gospel. The The one that I've always keyed on in the New Testament is in Luke 24, after Christ is risen from the dead, and he's with his apostles, and he, he's, he's telling them, he's opening their minds to understand the scriptures, and he, he tells them that it's, it's written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day's rise from the dead, and then what does he tell them? That repentance. And forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. So again, there you have it from Jesus himself, that the word of God is preached in law and gospel for repentance and forgiveness. So excellent walk through the scriptures. Let's, let's go to the book of Romans, because that is where we are here in Sharper Iron. And, and the reason for this discussion is because this is a key distinction that Paul's going to make in the book of Romans. And and we could look at tons of passages within the book of Romans to see this. I think the one that I really want you to to focus on for now, at least, Pastor Agrotowitz, because we're going to run out of time. And that's okay. <laughs> there's, there's so much to talk about here. But I, I want you to look a little bit ahead. Yesterday's program, we looked at chapter 3, verses 1 through 8, and, okay. and next, on Monday, we will pick up with 9 through 20 again. The The passage, I think, in the book of Romans, at least in my mind, and you, if you want to disagree with me on this, that's fine, but in my mind, where you really see the law-gospel distinction come into play so clearly in Paul is in three twenty one and following. So if you can't... I think that's the place at least to start when we're thinking about law and gospel in the book of Romans.
1: Okay, yes, great. And first, thank you for giving me some verses you wanted to kind of focus on, because when I was going through Romans, I'm like, oh man, we could spend an hour on just these three verses or so forth. So thank you for that. Okay, I wrote down a lot of passages in Romans where law shows up, and no, I, 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 I agree 100%. And I even wrote down, before you said that, the distinction clarified about this section that you just brought up, because I think it does really hammer home this law gospel stuff. Okay, so you said, um, what was it, 19, you wanted to start there? Sure, go for it. Yeah, okay, so now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin." And then in verse 21, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Now that little phrase, apart from the law, is vital for us to understand, that righteousness is something, that the righteousness we need to access heaven is separate from our works, the works of man, the works of the law. You have to have not just not just more righteousness, but a qualitatively different righteousness, the divine righteousness that God gives and puts upon you. That's the only way you're going to get into heaven, if you're perfect and you're measuring up to God's perfect standard. You know, we've, we've heard it said he doesn't grade on a curve. You know, he doesn't say, ah, uh, Pastor Apple, you got an 85. That's great. I'll let you in. Uh, it's perfection that he demands. And so here... Paul is laying out very, very clearly in, in the entire book of Romans. You know, if you, if you had to run the risk of trying to sum up, what, what is he trying to do with the law in Romans? It's to level the playing field. If you're Jew, if you're Gentile, you are under the law. There is no excuse. You cannot claim, I'm a Gentile and I don't know Moses. I mean, in the opening of, of Romans, he makes that clear, especially in chapter 2. And salvation only comes by way of Jesus and faith in him and in what he has done. The law brings knowledge of sin. If you are going to rely upon this, then it's going to kill you. Uh, The righteousness you need to access heaven is apart from all these things, and it comes by Christ. So at least those three verses I read, 19 through 21, a distinction of law and gospel is clear, but it's important to believe and realize. Because if you mess it up and you begin to rely upon the law, well, all sorts of... of, of, um, bad things are going to happen. and we, we can, If we have time, we'll talk about ways of messing up law and gospel. Verse 23, that in 24, that, that, that might be the sum of the entire Reformation right there. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift to the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's what we're talking about here. All have sinned. We all fall short. And justification is a gift. You have that word. the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This simple, profound passage defines how we ought to live as God's people. That God's good and righteous law that we love and we should love and we should keep before us as Christian people is the same law that shows us to be sinful and it's the same law that drives us to repentance, to look to Christ and know he has done it. It's his work and it's a gift. It's not earned, but it's something he gives.
0: So take us. uh, Oh man, like you said, Pastor Garus, there's there's so many passages in the book of Romans where this comes into play. I pick and you've you've got a list for me here. Uh, The one the one that I think you really see law gospel standing out and and I I think it it stands out to me because you see Paul applying it. I think is in chapter seven. Um, But if you want to do do a different one, go for it. Chapter seven, I think, and and the way that Paul he's. He's applying law and gospel to himself there, it seems. And and I think that's a fascinating example for us to consider within the book of Romans. We've got limited time, but if you want to do a different one, that's fine. But pick one more. Okay,
1: okay. chapter 7 is vital as well. Um, In chapter 7, St. Paul the Apostle, who is now faithful, he's converted to the faith, really has has the right understanding of the laws when he was a Pharisee. So now the law has come into his life, and he realizes this is the law that is, that is killing him and slaying him, and the very law that he thought he was keeping and doing a great job, he didn't understand the effects of it and how it, it, it does things to you. Namely, it reproves and rebukes and shows you to be a sinner. And St. Paul here really talks about his battle with sin, his battle with the flesh, that in our lives as Christian people, we are saints and we are sinners. We have that old Adam we continue to battle with every day, and St. Paul despises it, he feels the the, the pain, the pressure, the tension, so to speak, and I'm looking at this, there's a lot of verses here to to talk about, but um, uh, let's just, I'll, I'll jump at verse 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. Beautiful stuff. And a description of the Christian life, which is good for us Christians and any Christian who is caught maybe struggling, why aren't they getting better? Why do the temptations keep coming? Why do I keep falling? Why is it that, um, you know, the, the longer I'm a Christian, the worse I, I think that I am. Well, that's, that's life in this fallen world as we take this flesh around our necks and on our backs, the old Adam, you know, he's, he's just that, that monster that doesn't go away in this life. The great St. Paul, that wonderful blessed apostle, felt the same thing. And ultimately, at the end of chapter 7, you know, he, he, he takes us to the right place. The Holy Spirit, through him, I should say, takes us to the right place. Who's going to save me? And he doesn't say, well, if I just try harder, or if I fast more and exercise more discipline upon my body, thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's ultimately who we fall upon And live by, as we love God's law, but do realize the effects of it upon ourselves, the war we have in our members, we look to Christ and trust in his his forgiveness.
0: That, that conversation there about the old Adam, new Adam is going to set us up for tomorrow's program. That's the distinction we're going to look at tomorrow uh, with Dr. Rick Mars of Concordia Seminary in St. Louis going to help us with that distinction between old Adam, new Adam. So hopefully these two conversations will go straight together. Pastor Grott, we've got just under five minutes left here, and, and I want to give you a little bit of time, uh, we'll take that time, to, to lay out briefly just some of the ways that, that what are we missing when we misuse this distinction and, and then, if you would, summarize for us with the great blessing that this distinction is to us as Christians.
1: Okay, so we miss it when we look at the law and we think we can pull it off. When the law, we don't define it properly, understanding its function, then it becomes something that's palatable, meaning it, it we love it because we think we can do it. We love it because we are obedient to it, and we have some sort of conception that our own righteousness— our own righteousness is displayed based on how we keep God's holy law. So that's that's a huge blunder right there, because what that does is it causes us to look at the gospel and not see it for what it is. It's good news of salvation apart from us. Well, now it's, well, it's good, but, you know, we can contribute as well. So a little bit of my works, a little bit of Jesus and all as well, and we'll get into heaven. So a a misunderstanding of the law is going to cause one to look at the gospel differently. And once we become very law-oriented in our thinking— because, once again, we have missed or don't understand really what the law does, that's going to affect how we see conversion. So this notion that we, we have some ability in us, apart from the Holy Spirit, to assent to divine holy things, and also how we look at the sacraments, where the sacraments now are stuff that, the things that we do for God, things that we do more of a ritualistic you know, practice and exercise, as opposed to seeing these things as gifts, Walter, when he is talking about ways that we miss it, and I, I should have started here, it's in the person of Jesus. Who is Jesus to you? And a real law-oriented thinking person who, who once again doesn't doesn't quite grasp the effect of the law, looks to Jesus and doesn't have much of a problem, if any at all, seeing him as a new Moses. You know, another law giver who is giving us the gospel, which now means defined as works to do. <laughs> Grace and things that you have to do, um, which we, we did talk about gospel in the wide sense, but really stripping it of its narrow sense meaning. It's always something that you have to contribute to. And missing Jesus, missing him as our Savior, is is detrimental because we we need his, his atonement. We need to understand, for our own conscience, yes, but for salvation, to realize that he has died, he has made satisfaction. So also, I mean... Hopefully, what I just said can kind of at least give us a taste, that when you miss law and gospel, it has detrimental effects upon your theology, how you think, how you live, and, here's the most crucial, how you die. Because St. Paul will say in Galatians, if salvation could be attained by works of the law, Christ died for no purpose. And then, even further, he has this line, uh, Galatians 3.10, all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. If you rely on works, and you think that's going to play a part in you meriting heaven, um, then, then cursed you are, because you're relying upon something that's not going to save you and cannot save you.
0: Mm. Because that's something only the gospel can do.
1: Pastor yeah, only...
0: Ryan, go ahead, go ahead. Sum, sum it up, bring, only... it, bring it home, give us the goods.
1: <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to one handle minute. that. Oh, you're... One minute, one <laughs> minute. Okay, one minute. Yes, Christ has died for you, and we need to believe that and trust in him every day that we live. When that accusation flares up, look not to yourself, but look to your Lord and hear his promise. Uh, When he declares you forgiven, he declares you justified, he has done it. Go in peace. Amen.
0: Amen. Pastor Ryan Agradowitz is the Associate Pastor and Headmaster at Grace Lutheran Church and School in Brenham, Texas, helping us this morning to unpack the distinction between law and gospel and why it's such a key thing for us as Christians. Pastor Agradowitz, thanks for your time and wisdom today.
1: Hey, thank you, Pastor Apple. Enjoyed it and looking forward to doing it again.
0: God speaks to us in two ways. In His law, He speaks His commands. This is His revealed will for our lives. He shows us what a righteous life looks like, But we don't measure up. We are sinners. He shows us our sin and the law accuses us it cannot save. Graciously, God speaks to us in another word, his gospel, his promises to us, not what we must do, but what he has done in his son, Jesus Christ, given freely to us apart from any work or merit or worthiness in us. It is a free gift, and that word saves. And when we have this distinction between law and gospel, the scriptures are an open book, shining a light upon our Savior, Jesus Christ. I'm your host here on Sharp Iron, Pastor Timothy Apple of Grace Lutheran Church in Smithville, Texas. Thanks for spending the morning with us. Talk to you again tomorrow.